Welcome back to the Chase Brewster Show. I am your host, Chase Brewster. Today's guest is one of the greatest stories that you'll ever hear. He is a published author, a professor, an administrator, a motivational speaker, and someone who has survived a traumatic life-changing event. He is someone that I have a found motivation in by reading his work and following his platform, and someone I am very delightful to have on the show today. Uh, Welcome to the show, Dr. Disneyland, Jeffrey Barnes. I appreciate you coming on the show today. Well, thank you, Chase, and that was uh, that was quite an introduction, and I and I appreciate that, and I hope you and um, all of our listeners are doing great today as well. You know, I'm a baseball coach by trade. We started this platform, th- this podcast. We have had tremendous success in season two. We had over thirty thousand streams on twenty two episodes, and and really, I thought, um, you know, I thought I had a great group of friends, and I said, hey, let's hit record and, and just, you know, maybe we'll change somebody's life by listening. Anybody that knows me know I love Disney. Um, what I really, you know, I, me and my wife went to Disney for the first time about a year ago, I guess, about a year mm. and a half ago. We went in May of 22, so a little bit over a year ago. We've since been four times. Uh, wow. We're going. Th- we're going this year. We just got Christmas tickets to do the <laughs> uh, to do the Mickey's uh, Mania and Jolly yep. Nights. We got the special tickets, so. But I'll tell you what fascinates me um, just to know in is the business concept. You know, I like to pretend to be an entrepreneur. I I love people. You know, I love concepts of life and um, cleanliness. And, and, you know, you can – I tell people all the time, and I've made posts, and I'm sure you've made millions. There's, you know, there's lines everywhere. There's millions of people. There's no trash. There's no fights that I've ever seen. Um, you never hardly see people get out of line and go, hey, I don't want that. Um, it's just phenomenal business model. I know it didn't start out that way. They had, you know, sinking tar and, and people jumping the fence. And um, there was a lot of uh, problems along the way. And luckily for me, I get to read about it and, and stuff like your words. So um, I have a lot of Disney questions. But before I get there, uh, I kind of want to let the readers, um, our listeners in this case, uh, kind of little know a little bit about you. Again, it's mostly a baseball platform, a sports platform, but I want to make sure you know to do to do you justice. Um, you know, getting to read two books that you've done. You wrote um, you wrote the Wisdom of Walt, and you wrote Beyond the Wisdom of Walt. And I don't know how much you want to tell the people, but it sounds like you you may have some work uh, you're working on. Maybe another one, which, which I'm very delightful to hear in, in some of our conversations. Um, but man, you, you've really touched my life and some of the work you've done. It's, it's very easy to read. It's very gravitating. Uh, you teach the only Disney course in the country for college students, if that's only, correct. Only course on the history of Disneyland. The history of Disneyland. Yep. Um, and, and you also are a uh, professional speaker. So I'll let you speak about some of that. I wanted to let the listeners know, I mean, you're at Wayland Baptist University for, for 12 years, I think it was, in Arizona and Hawaii. 
Uh, now you're at Cal Baptist and doing awesome work there as dean of students. So I just wanted to, you know, before we jumped into it, you, you've done an awesome thing in your life. You, um, you, you obviously love education and love people. So I wanted to give you a little bit of time to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. So, um, well, first of all, again, thank you for having me on. And um, I'm, a, I'm a huge baseball fan. So when you initially reached out to me, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I get to talk baseball and Disney. How awesome is that? And uh, it's sort of fascinating because, uh, you know, Walt did not have a lot of social outlets. Um, his brother Roy once said, you know, I've never known Walt not to be working. But one of his few um, outlets or vices, if you will, depending on how much you think you need to work, um, he loved baseball. And he would go to baseball games, uh, you know, in, in Los Angeles. In fact, a lot of people don't realize this, but you know, when Disneyland opened in 1955, it was it was in Anaheim, obviously still is. And Anaheim was home to all of 14,000 residents and 60 motel rooms. That's it. Mm. Ten years later, Walt's throwing out the ceremonial first pitch for Angel Stadium in Anaheim. In, in other words, the park transformed Anaheim so quickly that just a decade later, that th they were home to a Major League Baseball team. And, and Walt got to throw out the first pitch, which I think is just absolutely, you know, amazing. So for me, um, yeah, I, I was in education, um, still am to some degree, um, for more than two decades and primarily worked with struggling students, whether it was adult learners, traditional learners, it didn't matter. And I realized here in Southern California that... Um, you know, what it takes to be successful, what it takes to achieve your goal, those, those principles don't change, right, Chase? I mean, you have to do the work. You have to have a goal. Um, you have to be willing to overcome obstacles. You have to be resilient. But here in Southern California, everyone, especially students, love Disneyland. And so I wanted to leverage my love for Walt, my love for the park in such a way that I could tell these stories and, and help students achieve their goals, achieve their dreams, graduate, and, and at the end of the day, go out and live a better, if not great, story. And so that's where the idea for a, a, a History of Disneyland course came from. It wasn't about the amusement park per se, as much as it was about Walt's story, how nobody uh, you know, believed in him following his bankruptcy, uh, you know, losing Oswald, the lucky rabbit, um, taking the risk with Snow White and then, you know, not giving in to the naysayers when everyone, to include his own wife and his own brother, didn't want to do Disneyland. Uh, because if you're going to make anything out of your life and out of your career, you, you have to be resilient. And you can't give in to the people who say, oh, well, you shouldn't do that. Or, you know, who are you to, to do that? Or, you know, that's not such a, a great idea. So, again, it wasn't about the amusement park. It was about the stories from the park. And that's why Walt built Disneyland. He built it for the purpose of telling stories. And at the end of the day, Walt Disney did not want to be remembered for Mickey Mouse, for Snow White, or even Disneyland. He most wanted to be remembered as a storyteller. Well, that's why we that's why we violate storytellers when we go to Anaheim to make sure we can get in the park. Exactly, e easy access. Storytellers yeah. was a big part of the the whole plan. It 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 really was, and so you know you, you have to recognize 
that um, your life is a story. Um, you're the you know lead character, the hero in your own story. Nobody's going to come along and you know achieve it or do it for you. And um, you know, I, I think the biggest thing is you know people have to wake up. Um, you know, story is not happily ever after ending. That's what we typically want to chase because that's you know comfort and ease and you know paradise. No, stories about conflict. If you don't have a conflict, you don't have a story. And, you know, I think the challenge that people face today is as soon as we face some sort of conflict, as soon as there are obstacles, as soon as there are adversities, we, we want to bail and go in the opposite direction. No, it, what we need to do is recognize that, you know, those obstacles serve as an opportunity for us to, again, level up in life, be the hero, slay dragons, and become much more interesting and much more successful. I wrote down, you know, every time I read a book, I keep, I keep notes because it's, you know, I try to read every night. I think it's good and, and whatever, and, and I'm all over the place and um, I try to take notes. So I took from the two books I've read from you, I took, I took three things out and I want to talk about them in this interview and I'll put you on the spot here a little bit. But the first, the, all the things I wrote, this stood out the most and it was the, the top thing I had in my notes. You, I'm assuming this is a quote from you, but it says, what was the key to Walt Disney's success? You remember the answer to this? Ooh, um, boy, I, I didn't realize I'm going to have to take a quiz on my own book. <laughs> um, I, I think it was it, it, it was his willingness to believe in himself, believe in his ideas, keep moving forward no matter what. Now, that might not be exactly what I, how I worded it, but, you know, looking back eight years later, that's my sense of it. Yeah, essentially, yes. The answer was imagination is what you uh, put. But, but, I mean, it's just... You know, as a 34-year-old dreamer, you know, my, my wife says, you know, my pastor said once, I'm the balloon and my wife's the string, and she likes to tell that story. I mean, that's essentially what I think of Walt when you hear the stories. I mean, imagination drove all of it, and it, it would have kept driving Ed Cotton and everything else. But I, I just every, – every time I read that from you, I just think, man, it, it's true. You know, I mean, yeah. it's awesome. Um, but, yeah, I, I hate to put you on the spot, but it's an awesome quote. From no, that's a, no, and, and here's the deal. He imagined – Mickey Mouse with sound. He imagined a full-length animated feature film, Snow White. He imagined Disneyland. And so having that goal, having that dream, having that vision drove him to, you know, even greater success. Um, and I think, you know, all of us have an idea. All of us have a reason and a purpose for being here. Um, and, and we've got to use our imaginations dream bigger, and then I think most importantly, um, get up off of our proverbial park bench and, and, and start taking action no matter what. You know, Walt first dreamed or imagined Disneyland, a place where parents and children could have fun together, when uh, he was with his two young daughters, Diane and Sharon, at Griffith Park in downtown L.A., and they're riding the merry-go-round, and he's stuck sitting on a bench. And all of a sudden, he gets this idea. His imagination is sparked. And 20 years later, he's opening up the happiest place on earth, which was a realization of what he had imagined and what he had dreamed about on that park bench two decades earlier. It's so surreal when you can see that actual park bench, it, you know, at it, Disneyland. Yeah, it, it gives me goosebumps every single time. Because, you know, what if he doesn't have the idea or worse, what if he has the idea and doesn't have the courage to get up off the bench and start 
taking action. And that's my mission. I believe we have ideas. We lack courage. Well, you know, I, I'm younger, 34. I mean, you know, I don't really know a difference just being a younger generation. But, you know, at a time in Walt's age, theme parks weren't really a thing. And even worse, fairs or whatever you want to call them, they were dirty. Yep. You know, when he came home, I think his wife said, no, you know, we're not, you know, it just it wasn't going to happen. No, 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 no. Because, again, it was synonymous with just dirty and trashy. And um, so, I mean, he, he not only did he dream something, he then had to go explain to people how his was going to be completely different. And, you know, he put a lot of work in to change the narrative about what, not only explain what theme parts were, but, you know, again, the brilliant about Walt is, he had the platform and the TVs to explain it. He had the characters. He had the essentially the intellect, the the IP to make the rides. You know, he right. had Mickey Mouse. He had, you know, I don't know exactly when those characters came to life and when Snow White got a ride and, you know, essentially all that I stuff. Mean, but Mickey Mouse, 1928, Snow White, 1937. Um, but again, it's a reflection of him always leaning into his imagination doing the work and then when it came time to do disneyland he he was sitting on these assets and ready to roll but how awesome is it that the assets it, it never stops the movies kids want to watch the movies but then they want to go to the parks to to ride the rides that they just watch in the movies it's just a thing. yeah so i put i had down two other quotes from you um these aren't these aren't quizzes these are just straight quotes but i, I thought both were awesome and I don't know if these are for you or from Walt, but one of them said, being realistic never changed the world. thought that was awesome. Um, I, that sounds like something I would say. It's awesome. Uh, just a true just billboard kind of, uh, you know, thing. And the other thing is, I, I don't, again, know if this was from you, but it says an older person might say too much. There's too much common sense to do that. Uh, sometimes I wonder if common sense isn't another way to uh, say in fear. Absolutely. No, I mean, I think we, um, as a society, as a culture, are, are trained to be average, trained to do what everybody else is doing, um, you know, conditioned, if you will, um, you know, to sort of stay in our lane and not rock the boat. Um, but if you accept that reality, then you're going to live a, a substandard story. And, you know, Walt didn't care that no one believed in him. He didn't care that there weren't theme parks. There were amusement parks, like you said, but they were parks that not only were dirty, but they only engaged us physically. And Walt was like, we can do better. We can tell stories. We can spark people's imaginations. And the amusement park operators of the day, when they heard what he was up to and how he was designing it, they were like, this, this is insane. It's never going to work. This is going to be an abject disaster. And that only fueled Walt more because he knew I'm not doing another amusement park. This is completely new. This is completely different. The more they hate it, the more right I am. The crazy thing about Walt, I think about a lot too, is if they would have just let him have the park in Burbank, none of that would ever happen in Anaheim. Because mm-hmm. I don't think he wanted to have originally, I mean, he just wanted to have a little yeah. Yeah. He uh, had know. eight acres next to the studio in Burbank and he's trying to figure out what to do with it. And it's, you know, close to, uh, you know, Griffith Park. So he could like run a little train to the merry-go-round back again. Uh, you know, people could hang out in a, you know, really super mini frontier land, a little bit of a Main Street USA. 
And he was going to call it Mickey Mouse Park, had it all drawn up and and took those plans to the city council in Burbank. And the city council turned him down. They're like, no, Walt, we don't want a carnival atmosphere in our town. But here's the lesson. Walt knew that no simply means next option. See, see, see the, the universe is working for us, not against us. And as a result, he hires the Stanford Research Group to study and suggest what would be the best location for a place where parents and children could have fun together. And they research about 150, recommend four, the number one spot being the Ball Road subdivision in Anaheim. And, um, you know, he goes from eight acres to 160 acres. And as I write about him beyond the wisdom of Walt, um, it's a good thing Burbank did turn him down, not just because he gets the 160 acres, but a few years after opening Disneyland, Walt's ready to move on to Walt Disney World in Florida at 27,440 acres. So if 160 acres only last him for a few years, imagine how frustrated he would have been at just eight acres in Burbank. It, it would have never worked. When, when when you talk about Walt Disney World, you know, there's there's 27,000 plus acres. Do you think they'll ever open up another park, Walt Disney World? Not only do I think they will, I, I, I think they have to. Um, Frank Wells, who, um, you know, worked alongside Michael Eisner um, during the tremendous growth and success of the company, mid-80s to mid-90s, once said, an asset is not an asset unless you use it. And they have, you know, the blessing of, of land in, in, in Florida. And my understanding is they could build everything, the parks, the theme parks, uh, the recreational facilities, Disney Springs, the hotels, they could build all of it four times over and still have land left. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I think financially they're going to have to tap into that asset. But then secondly, um, you know, Universal is really nipping at, at their at their heels and they're going to be opening their third park, uh, Epic Universe, in 2025. And I think that's going to cause a lot of theme park fans to go, whoa, like like this is pretty amazing. And it's it's going to cause Disney to say, look, we, we've got to stay ahead of Universal, ahead of the game, ahead of the curve and, and keep reinvesting. Question I got is, and, and I don't want to make it a, I don't know how much you enjoy talking about Walt. I mean, obviously, I know it's a passion of it. I don't want to do it a disservice to you and your story and whatever. So we can, I, I don't normally, you know, interview people that have such a passion and I guess <laughs> it's a person and it's a subject, you know, whatever. So, uh, you know, I don't, we'll spend as much time talking about Walt as you want to, but just kind of, we'll take this wherever you want to take it. But, you know, what year did, did Walt open, what year did they open Walt Disney World? Seventy. October of 1971. 71. So obviously there's no social media in 71. Walt passed away in like 65, maybe. Is that right? Uh, December of 66, six 60. months before they broke ground for Walt Disney World in Florida. So while Walt's looking for land and they Project X and they figure out Florida, did the world know that he was looking for a second location? I mean... Oh gosh, absolutely not. That's one of my favorite stories. So... um you know, with the success of Disneyland, um, when Walt starts looking for an East Coast location, um, and not necessarily to do another Disneyland, he 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 hated sequels. He never wanted to repeat himself. So the East Coast, with 
which ultimately became the Florida location, was all about Epcot, which was not another theme park. It was supposed to be an actual city, an experimental prototype community or city of tomorrow. And um, Walt, um, you know, looked in St. Louis. He looked in Niagara Falls. He looked in New York. He looked in Washington, D.C. and um, saw the location for what would become Walt Disney World um, the afternoon of November 22nd, 1963, the day President Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. And when he learned of that news, he said, we're going to go to Florida because I need to have an influence in changing the current condition of life in America and specifically urban cities. We can't wait. And with that, he then uh, formed five dummy corporations um, to begin secretly buying up the 27,440 acres. Because if people caught wind that it was Disney buying the land, the prices would skyrocket. And so he managed to keep it hidden, secret, under wraps, um, until he had purchased all of about 300 acres. And um, th this happens 1964, 1965. And in 1965, while they're celebrating the 10-year anniversary for Disneyland here in Southern California, um, newspapers around the country kept sending reporters out to celebrate the 10th anniversary and do one-on-one -on -one interviews with Walt. And a young lady, young reporter from the Orlando Sentinel, when it was her turn in October of 65, she pointedly asked Walt, are you the person buying up all of the land south of Orlando? And, and Walt froze and immediately began giving her all of the reasons for why he would not want to be in Central Florida and, you know, everything wrong with Orlando. And she walked out of there and thought, for someone who has zero interest in Central Florida, he knows a hell of a lot about it. And so she managed to convince her editors to run the story that the mysterious land purchaser was, in fact, Disney. Just like that, cat was out of the bag. Exactly. And they had to, you know, scramble and put together this rushed press conference with Roy and the, you know, governor. And, um, you know, Central Florida hasn't ever been the same. Speaking of Roy, I I'm often wondering why nobody ever writes a book about Roy Disney. Well, there are a couple. And I have been asked to do that. And um, I, I, I seriously think about it from time to time. So, um it's great that we're doing this interview now because, you know, we just wrapped up July. We're in the first week of August. And, um, you know, 2023 is the 100th anniversary of the Walt Disney Company. But what's not being talked about is how it's also the 100th anniversary of Walt going bankrupt with his first studio in Kansas City in 1923. And it's also the 100th anniversary of him, rather than giving up, Instead, boarding a train for California and boarding that train chase with $40, a single suitcase, and a one-way ticket. Now, he comes out to California because his brother Rory is already here, and he's encouraging him to come west. And then in October, just a month or so later, um, they sign the documents that would form the Walt Disney Brothers studio. And, you know, I tell people all the time, the difference between Laugh-O-Gram Walt's first studio, which went bankrupt in only 18 months. The difference between the first studio and the second studio that today is the largest entertainment company anywhere in the world 
The difference is not Walt. The difference is Roy. So, so, so Walt was the balloon to use your language and Roy was the string. Roy, Roy kept him grounded. Roy was definitely a genius, but also, I don't know. I mean, obviously none of this was there, but Roy kind of gets a bad rap because it feels like every time Walt had an idea, Roy was there saying no. Roy does get a bad rap. Um, and I think that's really unfortunate because um, it was a phenomenal partnership. Might well be um, one of, if not the best partnership in entrepreneurial and American business history. But what's also super interesting about all of that is, yeah, Walt's the visionary, Walt's the creator. You know, Roy's over here, you know, counting, um, you know, the, the, the money and making sure that, you know, he doesn't run them off the, you know, financial or physical cliff again. However, my understanding is the Walt Disney that we see on television, starting with the Disneyland TV program in October of 1954, the Uncle Walt that so many Americans fell in love with growing up, whether it was Wednesday night or Sunday night, that wasn't really Walt. Um, it, it was his TV persona, but more often than not, he, he could be a bit of an SOB. And the Walt that we see on television was really Roy. That that was who Roy really was, and that was Roy's genuine personality. At least that's what I've been told. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely times that, which I think, you know, obviously you know way about, more about it than me, but I think there's definitely stories of Walt. Walt definitely changed over time. The strike changed him. You know, different things made Walt kind of changed and, you know, made him feel different. Yeah, the strike was a really hard thing. Uh, and, and to put this into, you know, chronological context, um, Snow White's this huge success. They take the money from that, invest it in a brand new studio, state of the art in Burbank. And the second they open it up, his animators um, revolt, revolt and rebel and they, and they go on strike. And then as soon as he gets the strike settled, which was more Roy than Walt. Roy finally sent Walt out of the country and said, look, you're mm-hmm. not helping, dude. Um, you know, I need you to go away and let me take care of this. And he did. Well, the second they get the strike settled, World War II happens. People don't realize this, but the day or the day after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, the Army took over Walt's studio in Burbank. And as a result, you know, and he was so patriotic. But as a result, Walt um, not only let them use the facility, I don't think he had much of a choice, but not only is the facility used um, as a training ground, but Walt then dedicated himself to doing uh, training films, um, promotional material for you know war bonds at cost. And so yeah. he, he comes out of the strike into World War II. They're not making any money, none. And so Walt had to be sitting there wondering why in the world did we did we did we build this studio? So I got something. I, I was I was I was kind of phenomenal. I was reading a different Walt. I was reading uh, how to lead like Walt last night, and uh, it, it, I didn't realize like Pinocchio. There was another one. I didn't realize like they were considered failures back then when they came Absolutely. out. Yeah, that's surprising to me. Yeah, people need to realize Walt had more failures than successes. Again, starting with the bankruptcy, losing Oswald, the lucky rabbit. And then even after the success of Mickey Mouse and getting into full-length animated feature films, um, they were hit and miss. 
Um, you know, people weren't over the moon with Pinocchio. Uh, Fantasia was... Yeah, that uh, was one of them. Yeah, Fantasia was a, a critical su- success, um, but never particularly popular, at least when it first came out. And part of the problem with that wasn't just the sort of highbrow content, but in addition, Walt was so particular about, you know, wanting an orchestra to record the sound and wanting it to be as immersive as possible, most theaters in the United States couldn't show the film the way that Walt wanted them to. And so they missed out and it just, it just went over their heads. Um, and, and so that's, you know, and I think that's another life lesson. Um, it, it's always a process. It's always a journey. The second you think you've arrived and you've got it figured out, you don't. But Walt kept moving forward regardless. For Walt to be so smart, he just wouldn't quit smoking. Yeah. Um, I, I think another, about Another 10 years of Walt might have changed. If he could have got Epcot off the world, the world might be a completely different place right now. Yeah, I always say um, we, we needed 10 to 15 more years. You know, he died at age 65, and I don't know what the life expectancy was in the mid-60s. Um, it's you know, 65 certainly young today. I think it was still relatively young you know, 55 plus years ago. Um, but yeah, he, he picked up smoking when he was an ambulance driver for the Red Cross at the very end of World War One, and went on to develop a three-pack-a-day habit. Um, his, his daughter, Diane, was so concerned about this that for Christmas one year, um, she gave him filtered cigarettes. Because not only did he sp- smoke three packs a day, but he didn't even smoke filtered cigarettes. And so he promised his daughter that he'd smoke them. Well, she finds him smoking them, but he had broken the filters off. And Walt looks at her and says, I promised you I'd smoke them. I didn't promise you how. And come November of 1966, uh, he's diagnosed with lung cancer, given um, six months to two years to live and last all of five weeks. And for me... Um, yeah, what would Walt Disney World, what would, um, you know, Florida and specifically Epcot have looked like if Walt had gotten another 10 to 15 years? Not only did he love to smoke, his favorite food were hot dogs, so his body was all messed up. <laughs> well, and, and he liked um, a, a, a good scotch mist or two or three at the end of the day as well. I'll tell you, you could tell Walt didn't do Walt Disney World because the four parks are just all over the place. Yeah. Um, so a couple of points about that. Um, first of all, and, and let's go back to Roy here for just a second. Um, the day or the day after Walt died, Roy comes out of retirement and says, I am I am committed to seeing my brother's last dream through to fruition which was phase one of, of, of Walt Disney World. Secondly, it's Roy who insists it's not Project X, it's not Disney World, it's going to be Walt Disney World in honor of my brother. But then um, up to that point, because Roy ran the financial end of the company, he had been to Imagineering three miles away from the studio in Burbank. Roy had been to Imagineering all of one time. And now he's responsible for everything. 
And he would spend the last five years of his life in the swamps of Central Florida getting phase one opened. And, uh, you know, his son, Roy E. Disney, would go on to say that those were the best years of his dad's life. He might not have been familiar with it, um, but he loved it. And then secondly, at the end of the day, um, Walt Disney World, especially Magic Kingdom, you can tell it was designed by MBAs on a computer trying to maximize space for 35 to 40,000 people. Whereas Disneyland here in Anaheim, every inch of that orange grove was paced out step by step by Walt Disney himself. That, that's, that's the real difference. And then secondly, um, I, I refuse to ride a bus at Walt Disney World because those resorts are so spaced out, the parks are so spaced out, and I don't know where Walt would have put all of those parks, where he would have put all those resorts. What I am fairly certain of is that he would have run the monorail, the people mover, now the Skyliner, everywhere versus, you know, suburban style buses that you could ride anywhere in the United States. He loved transportation and he loved being innovative, um, looking toward the future and not doing what you could just experience anywhere and everywhere else. Yeah, my wife gets mad because Magic Kingdom is the park I hate the most. You know, she's like everybody else. She loves the castle and the fireworks and stuff, but it's literally like the biggest hassle in America. Like, seriously, I oh. mean, you have to you have to drive, take the monorail. We tried it last time we ended up taking the the boat, which was a bigger hassle. I mean, it, it's just it's just a nightmare. Yeah. So luckily We're, this time with 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 minis, um, the whole Christmas you know, deal, it'll be 4,000 people instead of 40, but it's just, <laughs> yeah. you can tell Walt had nothing to do with that because it doesn't smooth. It doesn't flow. There's no flow yeah. actually. Yeah. Um, you guys were out here in California, um, not too long ago, right? Yes, sir. We played in June in Anaheim and we were able to come by. Yeah. Um, I think that's the bigger shock. I just gave a tour, um, to a couple from Indianapolis and they're huge Disney fans. They've been to Walt Disney world more times than they can count but they had never been to Disneyland. And I was super excited to give them a tour of the only park that Walt Disney ever actually walked in. And I, the, the biggest difference is here in Anna, you can park hop in three minutes. Sure. You know, That's it what, takes an hour, hour and a half in Florida. Everybody asks my, you know, everybody will ask us and, you know, they'll say, you know, oh, what's the difference? And automatically people assume that Florida is better because there's so much more to offer, you know, by default. And I'm not saying Florida's not better. I'm sure you got your own opinion or whatever. And it probably is better. But, like, California definitely has its advantages. Like, we had, a, we had a guy, you know, he got us to park it, Storytellers, which was awesome. We went through with, like, 10 people. I mean, whoever's idea that was was genius. Um, we're in and like that. And then, I mean, you know, we, we can walk out of one and be in the other one. We can change parts in, you know, seven minutes. Exactly. So, um, you know, yeah, you, I mean, your, your wife can be in line at Disneyland and you can run across the Esplande and grab a snack that's unique to California Adventure and bring it back to her while she's standing in line. I'll be honest, too. Like, it, I mean, I don't want to say this on record because, like, I don't know who, how many Disney follow you. It's a lot. It's not nearly uh, as t tightly guarded in California. 
It, it's 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 not. Um, and I mean, there's a reason why I go by Doctor Disneyland, even though my first park experience was Walt Disney World, and I grew up in the Panhandle of Florida. Um, you know, being bigger does not, by definition, make you better. And I and I love going to Walt Disney World. I've been four times since last October. Um, but the the original has Walt's fingerprint everywhere, and the two parks here in California actually have more rides and attractions than the four parks in Florida. And really? then lastly, yeah. And then lastly, um, and this was from an Imagineer, I can't remember exactly who, but he went on record to say, Disneyland hugs you while Walt Disney World swallows you. I- I'd rather be hugged. You know, to me, the thing is, and everybody, and I'm going to ask you your, your favorite attractions and all that stuff, but, you know, like Guardians of the Galaxy to me makes the whole trip. Like, it's just, it's, you know, it's awesome, man. Like, it, I'm not like a thrill seeker, but it's like, it's, it's just a different kind of experience. You talking about the new coaster at Epcot or the at Guardians Epcot. version of Tower of Terror here? No, at, at Epcot. Yeah. You know, so that's what really made California, like, I mean, to me, it wasn't, you know, if they had that, I would just be like, well, we can just go to California. But, you know, um, now Instacoaster was amazing. I mean, it truly, and I know it's an older ride for probably you and people that's been out there, but like for a guy that had only been to Florida, I was like, well, I don't understand why they wouldn't have built this in Florida. Like, this is amazing. Right. Tower, Tower of Terror is my favorite ride. I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy is like up here, but like to take that off, Tower of Terror is my favorite ride, which the um, Guardians ride, the Anaheim version was a lot better, I felt like. Yeah, they converted um, Tower of Terror um, here into Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout. I love being able to go back and forth and have the two different versions. For um, sure. Because um, Tower in Florida is probably my favorite Florida attraction. And and that um, you know version of, of Tower was always better uh, you know, because you started in the back and you went across the mm-hmm. floor um, and then into the you know, elevator shafts. Whereas here they, they saved about $15 million and only did the one elevator shaft. So there isn't that, you know, experience, which I think is the best part of going across the floor. So the fact that they converted this into guardians while keeping the original in Florida, I, I think that's the best of both worlds. What, what else is like your, what is your favorite attraction? So my favorite attraction is space mountain. And as you uh, said in the intro, um, I, I uh, you know, I've had two life-threatening brain tumors, one in 2014, the other in 2020. And as a result of the surgeries, I, uh, you know, was grounded from any sort of attraction that would drop me, uh, spin me, shake me, or put G-forces on me for, for two years. Uh, two years after 2014 and two years again after 2020. And, you know, during that, you know, hiatus, what I missed the most by far was Space Mountain here at Disneyland. Um, most people prefer the Space Mountain here um, to the original. Uh, the, the first Space Mountain opened at Magic Kingdom in January of 75. Disneyland didn't get its version until May of 77. Most people prefer the Disneyland version. Uh, there are, however, a few folks that um, like the, the, the Walt Disney World version. Um, and when I go to Florida, I'll, I ride Space Mountain, but it's not my favorite the way that it is here in California. You know, California's, I think, side by side. Yes. The one in Florida, or I'm sorry, the one in California side by side. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah. Yep. Slink, Slinky Dog is another one of my favorite. It does everything kind of. Slinky Dog. Yeah, and we don't have that. And then Rock and Roller Coaster is kind of a good one. Yes. It, it's been down the last two times we went, but it's a good one. Yeah, it had been down for us too. And then I we were there the end of May, first part of June. I was surprised it had it had it had reopened. And I had not done that since my first surgery in twenty fourteen. Um so it had been close to ten years since I'd been on it. But is it, is it the same Earl Smith stuff right now? It is. I thought they were changing that out. That's what I thought I had heard. And so I was surprised that it was reopened so so soon and that it didn't seem like anything had changed. Um, have you rode Tron yet? Yes. Did you like it? I was disappointed. Uh, you know, we were doing an event um, at, at, at Universal. And so I had experienced Hagrid's. I had experienced Velocicoaster. Um and, you know, again, it's not, you know, an either or. I, I think both and are great. I love going to Orlando, going to Universal, and going to Walt Disney World. Um, my challenge for trying now, I love the lighting. I think the kinetic energy is a real plus into Tomorrowland. Um, the, the look at night is is phenomenal. Um, the attraction is way too short. Yeah, that's the downfall to me. And, and I can't figure out... What in the world took them five to seven years to, to get that thing built? It's baffling to me. Well, when Walt's not around, it takes a while. Yeah. I mean, Disneyland was built in exactly one year. They broke ground in the middle of July 1954, and they opened in the middle of July 1955. And for whatever reason, today, they can't, they can't build a Starbucks at Disney in less than a year. Give me, uh, for anybody listening, give me some of your favorite places to eat. That's the biggest, that's what I have the most trouble with. Oh. I thought I was going to love Star 220, but. Yeah, I haven't been there yet. So, um, at Walt Disney World, I'm a sucker for Sci-Fi Diner at Hollywood Studios. I like a good burger. I like a good milkshake. I love the theming. I, I, I absolutely love that, that environment. Um, Yak and Yeti is my favorite at Animal Kingdom. Um, you know, it, it, it's hard for me to ever say no or turn down, uh, you know, Yak and Yeti. California Grill at the top of the Contemporary Resort. If you're looking for an amazing dining experience, you're not afraid to spend a little money. And especially if you like a good filet, um, you know, California Grill is, is amazing. And then here in, 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 in California, and that's a challenging question because, you know, we go there as locals, so it's not necessarily, you know, we're looking to have this amazing dining experience, like, you know, when you're on a full vacation in Florida. So I love Bengal Barbecue in Adventureland, um, and, and that is unique to, uh, you know, to Disneyland. And then I'm a sucker for ice cream, Chase. So, um, you know, getting a root beer float at the Cozy Cone Motel inside Cars Land at California Adventure um, it, it's really hard for me to say no to that. So, you know, as this is now your profession, something, a hobby, a, a, a gift, a joy into a profession, how often do you just go to Disney to just research, to joy walk, to find a new coat float in Cars Land? I mean, how often do you just joy walk through the streets of, you know, town USA? Um, pretty frequently. You know, I, I, I'm very fortunate. I live about 30 miles from Disneyland. Um, and, you know, Lindsay loves to go. I love to go. 
um, yeah, we give tours. Yeah, I am giving, you know, keynote presentations and, you know, workshops and what have you. But there's a lot of times when we're like, let's go to the park tonight. Let, let's, um, you know, have dinner and, you know, hang out and it'll just be the two of us. And it's not for work. Um, and, and even it, when we are there for work, it, it's just so awesome that it doesn't feel like work. And, you know, to that end, I mean, Walt once said he'd never worked a day in his life because he was always doing things that to him were fun and things that he loved. And I'm very fortunate that that's where I am in my life and my career today. Speaking of your career, something I want to talk about as we kind of wrap this up. You're in education, you're a professor, you've got life rolling, you think you've got it figured out, but you've always had this idea, this passion. Tell me, you know, when you decided to, to kind of write your first book, to kind of start, you know, a, a course in the history of Disneyland, you, you go to your, um, I guess, dean or chancellor or president, you know, kind of take me through both sides of it, the author side, the, the professor side. Just kind of give me the scoop on how you decided sure. to turn this into a profession. Yeah. So uh, my first trip to Disneyland, I actually hated because um, I had grown up going to Magic Kingdom in Florida and I was completely underwhelmed by the size. Plus, uh, you know, we, we show up at like 11 a.m. on a Sunday in August. The park was absolutely mobbed. It was incredibly hot. I wanted to ride Star Tours first because that was the newest, latest, greatest. Um, and the next thing I know, I'm in a three hour line waiting for my first Disneyland attraction. Um, again, not a great first experience. But I went back three years later and I had done the research out of my own curiosity, discovered who Walt was really about, all of the adversity, all of the obstacles, all the resiliency. And I, I just fell in love with the story and the stories that the park puts on display every single day. And I mean, I was just all in. And I, I came home from that trip in June of 91, and I said to someone, I am going to write a Disneyland book one day. But I spent the next 20 plus years talking myself out of it. I don't know what to write a book on. I don't even know what this would look like. I don't know how to do it. You know, nobody would care. Nobody would buy it. I mean, on and on and on it went. And if I'm being 100% honest, to some degree, teaching the college course was an attempt on my part to get out of writing the book because I knew how to teach a class. I didn't know how to write a book. And the day after I gave the first lecture was when I was diagnosed with the life-threatening brain tumor. They wanted to operate immediately. I was like, no, I'm teaching this class. It's all about, you know, Disneyland, but really about adversity and obstacles and resiliency. Well, now I can live that lesson and not just teach it. And so I delayed that surgery for two and a half months so I could teach the course. Um, the, the surgery was successful. And when I went back to work two months later, I realized um, that, you know, if that had been it, my, my number one regret would have been I never wrote the book. And now having faced my own mortality, I'm like, get over yourself, figure it out. Like, like make it happen. And so what had been 20 plus years of, I don't know how and excuses and procrastination from start to finish 142 days. Awesome. Yeah. So again, and, and that's another example of conflict, right? 
making your story better. That one of the best things that ever happened to me was getting a brain tumor because it allowed me to finally write my book, which then gave me a platform for, you know, reaching out and connecting with fans all around the world and traveling the world, giving motivational and inspirational uh, talks based on Walt Disney, Disneyland, your story and my story. So obviously now you're a best-selling author, uh, number one best-selling author, to be correct. When, when, at what part did you go from scared to write? I mean, you know, respectfully, scared to do it, getting over the, the fear, putting it out, not selling a bunch of copies. All of a sudden now I'm a number one best-selling author to, to hey, let's do another one. You know, what would that timeline look like? Oh, that's a great question. In fact, I don't know that I've ever been asked that question. Um, so I felt a lot like Walt did when he went on record and said, there'll never be another Disneyland. You know, the park's an instant success. Yeah, it had some, you know, challenges with opening day and, you know, a few lean months here and there. But by and large, it was an instant and overnight phenomenal success. So cities around the country, countries around the world kept calling, kept clamoring. They wanted their own Disneyland. And Walt was like, no, I don't do sequels. I don't repeat myself. There'll never be another Disneyland. And then eventually he relents um, and, you know, has this dream and vision for Walt Disney World, which, again, was going to be all about Epcot. But he was also going to need Magic Kingdom or Disneyland 2.0 to fund what he dreamed of doing with Epcot. Well, I just wanted to write the darn thing. And I wouldn't wish writing a book on my worst enemy. I mean, it's a very difficult and challenging process. I, I was just thrilled that I that it was done. I was just thrilled that I didn't have to, you know, worry about dying with this book inside me anymore. And then the next thing I know, it it, it takes off. And people on the East Coast, people who are diehard Walt Disney World fans, they started reaching out to me and say, you know, we love the wisdom of Walt. We love how you inspire and motivate us using not just Walt's story, but stories from Disneyland, you need to do the same for Walt Disney World. And I was like, I'm never writing another book. I was like, Walt, and there'll never be another Disneyland, right? But eventually, there were so many requests for that, and my publisher pushed me, that I I, I relented. And I, I relented on one condition, and that is, there had to be different stories that would make, uh, you know, different life and leadership points. Otherwise, I, I, I wasn't interested in doing it just for the sake of doing it. And so I started doing the research, uncovering stories and, and realizing that I could tell those and leverage those just like I had uh, with the Wisdom of Walt. But again, um, completely different stories and completely different points and completely different life lessons. So. Um, the first book came out in July of 2015, the second one in October of 2017, so less than two and a half years later. How long did it take you to write the second one? It, it, longer than 142 days, but fortunately, I didn't have 20 years of I don't know how and yeah, you know, yeah. what was me. Um, you know, so while I spent more time writing the second book, um, I didn't have any of the, you know, mental, uh, you know, challenges or excuses that, you know, kept the first book from coming out for more than two decades. You ever think how wild it is that somebody like me 
20 hours away. I mean, I read that book three weeks ago, the second one. I mean, it's now mm, six years later. Read it like it came out last week. I mean, that's the that's the beauty of art, you know, and, and written word. You know, I mean, it just I was, yeah. you could have told me it came out two weeks ago. I had no idea. I mean, yeah. Other than yeah. it was signed signed to Erica on the front page, I got an autographed copy to Erica. Awesome. Other than that, yeah, yeah. appreciate that. Um, so. You know, I I'm a huge baseball fan. Um, I was never going to be center fielder for the San Francisco Giants. The books are my legacy, and I love signing books because I was never going to be this athlete, you know, giving out autographs. So this is sort sure. of my, you know, my version of that. And today, uh, you know, I have a free Wednesdays with Walt inspirational, motivational email blog that comes out every single week. Um, that's about to get compiled into um, its own book uh, published by Morgan James in early 2024. And we're working on the worldwide wisdom of Walt Chase, which will be all about the international parks and the and, and the cruise ships. I think that'll be awesome. Yeah. We, me and my wife were in Hawaii and we went, we drove out of the way just to check out the hotel out there. I, I was living in that community, community called Koalina with Alani, like a quarter of a mile away while that property was being built. You wouldn't know it was a Disney property when you walk in. I mean, no, other than I, the gift store. Yeah. And I think that's a testament to Disney because they really wanted to integrate it with the environment and, and, and with the Hawaiian culture. And I, I think they did an amazing job of that. All right. As we wrap this up, cause I know you got a meeting. Tell me about keynote speaker. You get nervous when you give your speeches? Absolutely not. You enjoy it? Love it. Yeah. You I enjoy that more than the writing. Yes, I do. Um, although I'm probably a better writer than I am a, a, a speaker. Um, writing is like painstaking, we, you know, whereas like just talking uh, and it's not just talking, obviously, you know, you're, you're, you're connecting with the audience. You're making sure that you hit on points that, you know, meet the needs of the event, the company, the whatever. Um, but given the time, even though it is painstaking, I like the challenge of crafting words and putting together a story in a way that, you know, connects with the reader by the end of the, you know, chapter, the end of the book, the end of the article, the end, the end of whatever. So I enjoy speaking more. Um, and I spoke yesterday morning. I spoke this morning. I'm on my way to, you know, Napa next week to speak up there. I like speaking more. Um, but if I'm honest, I, I'm more gifted as a writer than, than I am a speaker. The most important thing is which one pays more. Oh, speaking. By far. But here's the here's the deal. In order to be a speaker, you have to be an authority. Well, guess what the word authority starts with? Author. Exactly. So um, if anybody's interested in getting into this business, that's great. Um, but the best thing you could do is write a book because being an author gives you the authority to stand on a stage and speak. All right, so you're also uh, the professor. Tell me how many how many classes do you have? How many students take this class? Have you ever had anybody fail the history of Disneyland? <laughs> That's a great question. So I was primarily um, dean of student success and then secondarily professor of humanities. And I taught U.S. history, first and second half, American government, state and local government. Um, but anybody, 
can teach those courses. Um, I wanted something unique, and that, of course, was you know history of Disneyland. Um, the students absolutely love it. It is easily the best interdisciplinary course I've ever seen. And I don't say that because it's my course. I say it because, um, you know, it touches on business. It touches on history. It touches on architecture. You know, it, it touches on, uh, you know, music and drama. I mean, there are just so many different, you know, layers to um, the, the, the course. But then secondly, it includes a field trip to Disneyland. So I, I, I make the park not just the happiest place on earth, but the happiest classroom on earth. And then the semester ends with a behind-the-scenes field trip of Garner Holt Productions here in Southern California. And Garner Holt is the world's largest maker of audio animatronics. They do audio animatronics better than Imagineering does. Um, and, you know, for students to be able to see um, what they do, how they do it, and, you know, how they're better at it than even Disney um, it, it's a phenomenal tour. It's a phenomenal, you know, history. Sure. All right, I'm gonna wrap this up because I know you got something in just a little bit. We end every show with what I call five moments of truth. Uh, question one: Give me the best advice you've ever received, and who give it to you? Ooh, um, that's a, a professor from my graduate school who said the saddest day of his life was the day that he graduated with his PhD because he was overwhelmed with how much he did not know. So, um, you know, education is about being aware of what you don't know, um, being honest with yourself about your own ignorance versus your own arrogance, and, and having a willingness to constantly learn every single day. Number two, give me the biggest mentor you've ever had, you've ever had, either professionally or personally. That would be my writing coach. Um, you know, when I made the commitment to finally write the book after uh, coming back following the surgery, um, I hired a writing coach. And I realize now I, I didn't necessarily need the coach. The coach was sort of like Dumbo's feather. Just like Dumbo could have always flown, I could have always uh, have written. But I needed his mentorship, his encouragement, his structure um, to finally figure out how to get this thing done. So I asked the same question to all uh, my interviewees because I think it's important. You know, everybody I interview, I consider a success. I think it's important at the end of all this to, to kind of run back all the successful answers. So I don't really know how you want to answer this one because you're a different, you're in a league of your own. Uh, <laughs> the question is, the question is, give me the up-and-coming guy uh, to look out for in your profession. So I guess you could give me another uh, Disney author. You could give me another professor. You can give me whatever you want. But the question sure. is, uh, give me an up-and-coming person in your profession to look out for. So there's a fellow by the name of Christopher Tremblay who does a Waltz pilgrimage course. Um, he's out of Michigan, and every year he takes a handful of students, and they go from Michigan to Chicago to Marceline, to Kansas City, to Burbank, to Disneyland. And, um, you know, I think that's an amazing course. I think it's an amazing trip. Um, Chris continues to publish. He started with Walt's Pilgrimage back in 2017. In fact, he and I just wrapped up a project on the Walt 100, uh, 100 fun facts about Walt and Roy and the company from the past 10 decades. And, um, 
he's just crushing it. Um, you know, he's crushing it with his students, extremely creative, extremely innovative. And, um, you know, people need to keep that name on their radar because they're going to hear more from Chris Tremblay. Good. We appreciate Chris. Number four, give me your goals for 2023. Oh, goals for 2023. Um, I want to be in better shape physically. In in fact, I was just at the gym working out um, before this interview. And I want to, um, you know, get the best 52 blog posts from Wednesdays with Walt compiled and and published into the first book version that will be available in bookstores everywhere by 2024. We definitely hope that happens. Number five, I started this podcast to be a part of change. I always say if I knew exactly what change was, I wouldn't, you know, have a reason to ask this. But obviously, Walt loved change. That was what Epcot was all about. Uh, we want to, you know, our hashtag is change, inspire, motivate. That's what we want to be a part of. We kind of end this with the open-ended, you know, however uh, you want to answer it. But, you know, just how we can all leave this place better than we found it, how we can change, how we can inspire, how we can motivate it. Just kind of leave it, you know, however you want to to end out this podcast. Yeah, so – Again, I think every person is here for a reason, here for a purpose. You have an idea, just like Walt had an idea for a place where parents and children could have fun together. You got to believe in yourself. You got to believe in your idea. You got to believe that you're here for a purpose. And you got to start changing, maybe not the world, but at least your world by getting up off of your park bench, taking more risk, taking more action. Um, I, I, I say in my keynote, you can always overthink. You can almost never overact. So have the courage to be the hero in your own great story. Start taking action. You're going to fail. That's all right. Walt had more failures than successes. And you're never going to figure it out until you get your idea out into the world, out into the marketplace, just like Walt did with Disneyland on Black Sunday. And once you know what you have and what you don't have, you can get busy fixing it. Well, I can't thank you enough, Jeff, for coming on the show. I'm a huge fan of you. This is a little bit out of our comfort zone on the Chase Brewster Show, but it's been one of my favorite podcasts. You know, I, I first heard about you on um, Jeffrey Cole's po- or Jesse Cole's podcast. Yeah, you were phenom- you were, yeah, you were phenomenal on there. Um, you were phenomenal in your writing. And, and one day I hope to take your course to be a better leader. Uh, and again, I can't thank you for enough for coming on the show and, I look forward to hopefully continuing our friendship and we look forward to hopefully reading other works from you and, and helping you out any way I can. But I appreciate you coming on the show today. Well, thank you, Chase. And uh, folks who are interested in learning more, they just simply need to go to thewisdomofwalt.com. Well, if I can help you in any way, please let me know. Absolutely. Thank you very much. He conducted himself like a knucklehead.